Chapter Thirteen of New Treasure Seekers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbit. Chapter Thirteen: The Poor and Needy. What shall we do today, kiddies? said Mrs. Bax. We had discovered her true nature, but three days ago, and already she had taken us out in a sailing boat and in a motor car, had given us sweets every day, and taught us eleven new games that we had not known before, and only four of the new games were rotters. How seldom can as much be said for the games of a grown-up, however gifted. The day was one of cloudless blue perfectness, and we were all basking on the beach. We had all bathed. Mrs. B. said we might. There are points about having a grown-up with you, if it is the right kind. You can then easily get it to say, yes, to what you want, and after that, if anything goes wrong, it is their fault, and you are pure from blame. But nothing had gone wrong with the bathe, and, so far, we were all alive, and not cold at all, except our fingers and feet. What would you like to do? asked Mrs. Bax. We were far away from human sight along the beach, and Mrs. Bax was smoking cigarettes as usual. I don't know, we all said politely, but H.O. said, What about poor Miss Sandal? Why poor? asked Mrs. Bax. Because she is, said H.O. But how? What do you mean? asked Mrs. Bax. Why, isn't she? said H.O. Isn't she what? said Mrs. Bax. What you said why about? said H.O. She put her hands to her head. Her short hair was still damp and rumpled from contact with the foaming billows of ocean. Let's have a fresh deal and start fair, she said. Why do you think my sister is poor? I forgot she was your sister, said H.O., or I wouldn't have said it. Honour bright, I wouldn't. Don't mention it, said Mrs. Bax and began throwing stones at a groin in aviable silence. We were furious with H.O., first because it is such bad manners to throw people's poverty in their faces, or even in their sisters' faces, like H.O. had done, and second because it seemed to have put out of Mrs. Bax's head what she was beginning to say about what would we like to do. So Oswald presently remarked, when he had aimed at the stump she was aiming at, and hit it before she did, for though a fair shot for a lady, she takes a long time to get her eye in. Mrs. Bax, we should like to do whatever you like to do. This was real politeness and true too, as it happened, because by this time we could quite trust her not to want to do anything deeply duffing. That's very nice of you, she replied, but don't let me interfere with any plans of yours. My own idea was to pluck a wagonette from the nearest bush, 
I suppose they grow freely in these parts. There's one at the ship, said Alice. It costs seven and six to pluck it, just for going to the station. Well, then, and to stuff our wagonette with lunch and drive over to Linwood Castle and eat it there. A picnic fell in a sense of joy from the lips of one and all. We'll also boil the billy in the castle courtyard and eat buns in the shadow of the keep. Tea as well, said H.O., with buns. You can't be poor and needy anyway, whatever you're. We hastily hushed him, stifling his murmurs with sand. I always think, said Mrs. Back dreamily, that the more the merrier is peculiarly true of picnics. So I have arranged, always subject to your approval, of course, to meet your friends, Mr. and Mrs. Redhouse, there, and we drowned her conclusive remarks with a cheer, and Oswald, always willing to be of use, offered to go to the ship and see about the wagonette. I like horses and stable-yards, and the smell of hay and straw, and talking to ostlers and people like that. There turned out to be two horses belonging to the best wagonette, or you could have a one-horse one, much smaller, with the blue cloth of the cushions rather frayed, and mended here and there, and green in patches from age and exposition to the weather. Oswald told Mrs. Bax this, not concealing about how shabby the little one was, and she gloriously said, The pair, by all means, we don't kill a pig every day. No, indeed, said Dora, but if killing a pig means having a lark, Mrs. Bax is as good a pig-killer as any I ever knew. It was splendid to drive. Oswald, on the box beside the driver, who had his best coat with the bright buttons, along the same roads that we had trodden as muddy pedestrinators, or travelled along behind Bates's donkey. It was a perfect day, as I said before. We were all clean and had our second-best things on. I think second-bests are much more comfy than first-bests. You feel equivalent to meeting anyone, and have a heart for any fate, as it says in the poetry book, and yet you are not starched and booted and stiffened and tightened out of all human feelings. Linwood Castle is in a hollow in the hills. It has a moat all round it, with water-lily leaves on it. I suppose there are lilies when in season. There is a bridge over the moat, not the draw kind of bridge, and the castle has eight towers, four round and four square ones, and a courtyard in the middle all green grass and heaps of stones, stray bits of castle, I suppose they are, and a great white may tree in the middle that Mrs. Back said was hundreds of years old. Mrs. Redhouse was sitting under the may tree when we got there, nursing her baby in a blue dress and looking exactly like a picture on the top of a chocolate box. The girls instantly wanted to nurse the baby, so we let them, and we explored the castle. We had never happened to explore one thoroughly before. We did not find the deepest dungeon below the castle moat, 
though we looked everywhere for it. But we found everything else you can think of belonging to castles. Even the holes they used to pour boiling lead through into the eyes of besiegers, when they tried to squint up to see how strong the garrison was in the keep, and the little slits they shot arrows through, and the mouldering remains of the portcullis. We went up the eight towers, every single one of them, and some parts were jolly dangerous. I can tell you, Dicky and I would not let H.O. and Noel come up the dangerous parts. There was no lasting ill-feeling about this. By the time we had had a thorough good explore, lunch was ready. It was a glorious lunch, not too many meaty things, but all sorts of cakes and sweets, and grapes and figs and nuts. We gazed at the feast, and Mrs. Back said, "'There you are, young Copperfield, and a royal spread you've got.' "'They had currant wine,' said Noel, who had only just read the book by Mr. Charles Dickens. "'Well, so have you,' said Mrs. Bax. "'And we had two bottles of it.' "'I never knew any one like you,' said Noel to Mrs. Redhouse, dreamily with his mouth full, "'for knowing the things people really like to eat.' not the things that are good for them, but what they like, and Mrs. Bax is just the same. It was one of the things they taught at our school, said Mrs. Bax. Do you remember the Saturday night feasts, Chloe, and how good the coconut ice tasted after extra strong peppermints? Fancy you knowing that, said H.O. I thought it was us found that out. I really know much more about things to eat than she does, said Mrs. Bax. I was quite an old girl when she was a little thing in pinafores. She was such a nice little girl. I shouldn't wonder if she was always nice, said Noel, even when she was a baby. Everybody laughed at this except the existing baby and it was asleep on the wagonette cushions under the white may tree, and perhaps if it had been awake it wouldn't have laughed, for Oswald himself, though possessing a keen sense of humour, did not see anything to laugh at. Mr. Redhouse made a speech after dinner, and said drink to the health of everybody, one after the other, in currant wine, which was done, beginning with Mrs. Bax and ending with H.O. Then he said, Some of us avant. What shall we play at? And nobody, as so often happens, had any idea ready. Then suddenly Mrs. Redhouse said, Good gracious, look there. And we looked there. And where we were to look was the lowest piece of the castle wall, just beside the keep that the bridge led over to and what we were to look at was a strange blobbiness of knobbly bumps along the top that looked exactly like human heads. It turned out when we had talked about cannibals and New Guinea that human heads were just exactly what they were, not loose heads stuck on pikes or things like that, such as there often must have been while the castle stayed in the olden times it was built in and belonged to, but real live heads with their bodies still in attendance on them. They were, in fact, 
the village children. Poor little Lazaruses, said Mr. Redhouse. There's not such a bad slice of dives feasts left, said Mrs. Bax. Shall we? So Mr. Redhouse went out by the keep and called the heads in, with the bodies they were connected with, of course, and they came and ate up all that was left of the lunch, not the buns, of course, for those were sacred to tea-time, but all the other things, even the nuts and figs, and we were quite glad that they should have them. Really and truly we were, even H.O. They did not seem to be very clever children, or just the sort you would choose for your friends, but I suppose you like to play, however little you are other people's sort. So, after they had eaten all there was, when Mrs. Redhouse invited them all to join in games with us, we knew we ought to be pleased, that village children are not taught rounders, and though we wondered at first why their teachers had not seen to this, we understood presently, because it was most awfully difficult to make them understand the very simplest thing. But they could play all the ring games, and the nuts and may, and there came three nights, and another one we had never heard of before. The singing part begins, up and down the green grass, this and that and thus. Come along, my pretty maid, and take a walk with us. You shall have a duck, my dear, and you shall have a drake, and you shall have a handsome man, for your father's sake. I forgot the rest, and if anybody who reads this knows it, and will write and tell me, the author will not have laboured in vain. The grown-ups played with all their heart and soul. I expect it is but seldom they are able to play, and they enjoyed the novel excitement, and when we'd been at it some time, we saw there was another head looking over the wall. Hello, said Mrs. Bax. Here's another of them. Run along and ask it to come and join in. She spoke to the village children, but nobody ran. Here you go, she said, pointing at a girl in red plaits tied with dirty sky-blue ribbon. Please, miss, I'd love a knot, replied the red-haired. Mother says we ain't to play along of him. Why, what's the matter with him? asked Mrs. Redhouse. His father's in jail, miss, along of snares and night lines, and no one won't give his mother any work, so my mother says we ain't to demean ourselves to speak to him. But it's not the child's fault, said Mrs. Redhouse, is it now? I don't know, miss, said the red-haired, but it's cruel, said Mrs. Bax. How would you like it if your father was sent to prison, and nobody would speak to you? Father's always kept himself respectable, said the girl with the dirty blue ribbon. You can't be sent to jail, not if you keeps yourself respectable. You can't, miss. And do none of you speak to him? The other children put their fingers in their mouths and looked silly, showing plainly that they didn't. Don't you feel sorry for the poor little chap, said Mrs. Bax. No answer transpired. Can't you imagine how you'd feel if it was your father? My father always keep himself respectable, 
the red-haired girl said again. Well, I shall ask him to come and play with us, said Mrs. Redhouse. Little pigs, she added in low tones, only heard by the author and Mr. Redhouse. But Mr. Redhouse said in a whisper that no one overheard except Mrs. R. H. and the present author. Don't puss cat, it's no good. The poor little parrier wouldn't like it, and these kids only do what their parents teach them. If the author didn't know what a stainless gentleman Mr. Redhouse is, he would think he heard him mutter a word that gentlemen wouldn't say. Tell of a detachment of consolation. Mr. Redhouse went on. Look here, our kids. Who'll go and talk to the poor little chap? We all instantly said, I will. The present author was chosen to be the one. When you think about yourself, there is a kind of you that is not what you generally are but that you know you would like to be if only you were good enough albert's uncle says this is called your ideal of yourself i will call it your best i for short oswald's best i was glad to go and talk to that boy whose father was in prison but the oswald that generally exists hated being out of the games, yet the whole Oswald, both the best and the ordinary, was pleased that he was the one chosen to be a detachment of consolation. He went out under the great archway, and as he went he heard the games beginning again. This made him feel noble, and yet he was ashamed of feeling it. Your feelings are a beastly nuisance, if once you begin to let yourself think about them. Oswald soon saw the broken boots of the boy, whose father was in jail, so nobody would play with him, standing on the stones near the top of the wall, where it was broken to match the boots. He climbed up and said hello. To this remark the boy replied, Hello. Oswald now did not know what to say. The sorrier you are for people, the harder it is to tell them so. But at last he said, I've just heard about your father being where he is. It's beastly rough luck. I hope you don't mind my saying I'm jolly sorry for you. The boy had a pale face and watery blue eyes. When Oswald said this, his eyes got waterer than ever, and he climbed down to the ground before he said, I don't care so much, but it do upset, mother, something cruel. It is awfully difficult to console those in affliction. Oswald thought this. Then he said, I say, never mind if those beastly kids won't play with you. It isn't your fault, you know. Nor it ain't father's neither, the boy said. He broke his arm a falling off a rick and he hadn't paid up his club money along of mother's new baby costing what it did when it come, so there weren't nothing, and what's a hare or two or a partridge? It ain't as if it was pheasants, as it is as dear to rear as chicks. Oswald did not know what to say, so he got out his new pen and pencil combined and said, Look here, you can have this to keep if you like. The pale-eyed boy took it and looked at it and said, 
"'You ain't foolin' me?' And Oswald said no, he wasn't, but he felt most awfully rum and uncomfy, and though he wanted most frightfully to do something for the boy, he felt as if he wanted to get away more than anything else, and he never was gladder in his life than when he saw Dora coming along, and she said, "'You go back and play, Oswald. I'm tired, and I'd like to sit down a bit.' She got the boy to sit down beside her, and Oswald went back to the others. Games, however unusually splendid, have to come to an end, and when the games were over and it was tea, and the village children were sent away, and Oswald went to call Dora and the prisoner's son. He found nothing but Dora, and he saw at once, in his far-sighted way, that she had been crying. It was one of the alest days we ever had, and the drive home was good, but Dora was horribly quiet, as though the victim of dark interior thoughts, and the next day she was but little better. We were all paddling on the sands, but Dora would not, and presently Alice left us and went back to Dora, and we all saw across the sandy waste that something was up, and presently Alice came down and said, Dry your feet and legs and come to a council. Dora wants to tell you something. We dried our pink and sandy toes, and we came to the council. Then Alice said, I don't think H.O. is wanted at the council, it isn't anything amusing. You go and enjoy yourself by the sea, and catch the nice little crabs, H.O., dear. H.O. said, You always want me to be out of everything. I can be counsels as well as anybody else. Oh, H.O., said Alice, in pleading tones, not if I give you half a penny to go and buy bull's eyes with. So then he went and Dora said, I can't think how I could do it when you'd all trusted me so, and yet I couldn't help it. I remember Dickie saying when you decided to give it me to take care of, about me being the most trustworthy of all of us. I'm not fit for anyone to speak to, but it did seem the really right thing at the time. It really and truly did, and now it all looks different. "'What has she done?' Dicky asked this, but Oswald almost knew. "'Tell them,' said Dora, turning over on her front and hiding her face partly in her hands and partly in the sand. "'She's given all Miss Sandal's money to that little boy that the father of was in prison,' said Alice. "'It was one pound thirteen and sevenpence halfpenny,' sobbed Dora. "'You ought to have consulted us. "'I do think, really,' said Dicky. "'Of course, I see you're sorry now, but I do think that.' "'How could I consult you?' said Dora. "'You were playing cat and mouse, and he wanted to go home. "'I wish you'd heard what he told me. "'That's all, about Mother being ill, "'and nobody letting her to do any work "'because of where his father is, "'and his baby brother ill.' Poor little darling, and not enough to eat, and everything as awful as you can possibly think. I'll save up and pay it all back out of my own money. Only do forgive me, all of you, 
and say you don't despise me for a forger and embezzlementer. I couldn't help it. I'm glad you couldn't, said the sudden voice of H.O., who had sneaked up on his young stomach unobserved by the council. You shall have all my money too, Dora, and here's the bull's-eye halfpenny to begin with. He crammed it into her hand. Listen, I should jolly well think I did listen, H.O. went on. I've just as much right as anybody else to be in at a council, and I think Dora was quite right, and the rest of you are beasts, not to say so too, when you see how she's blubbing. Suppose it had been your darling baby brother ill, and nobody hadn't given you nothing when they got pounds and pounds in their silly pockets. He now hugged Dora, who responded. It wasn't her own money, said Dicky. If you think you're our darling baby brother, said Oswald. But Alice and Noel began hugging Dora and H.O., and Dicky and I felt it was no go. Girls have no right and honourable feelings about business, and little boys are the same. All right, said Oswald, rather bitterly. If a majority of the council backs Dora up, we'll give in. But we must all save up and repay the money, that's all. We shall all be beastly short for ages. Oh, said Dora, and now her sobs were beginning to turn into snips. You don't know how I felt, and I've felt most awful ever since, but those poor, poor people. At this moment, Mrs. Bax came down onto the beach by the wooden steps that led from the sea wall, where the grass grows between the stones. Hello, she said. Hurt yourself, my Dora Dove? Dora was rather a favourite of hers. It's all right now, said Dora. That's all right, said Mrs. Bax, who has learnt in Auntie-what-its-name climbs the great art of not asking too many questions. Mrs. Redhouse has come to lunch. She went this morning to see that boy's mother. You know, the boy the others wouldn't play with. We said yes. Well, Mrs. Redhouse has arranged to get the woman some work, like the dear she is. The woman told her that the little lady... That's you, Dora, had given the little boy one pound thirteen and sevenpence. Mrs. Bax looked straight out to sea through her gold-rimmed spectacles and went on. That must have been about all you had among the lot of you. I don't want to jaw, but I think you're a set of little bricks, and I must say so or expire on the sandy spot. There was a painful silence. H.O. looked. There, what did I tell you, at the rest of us? Then Alice said, We others had nothing to do with it. It was Dora's doing. I suppose she said this because we did not mean to tell Mrs. Bax anything about it, and if there was any brickiness in the act, we wished Dora to have the consolement of getting the credit of it. But, of course, Dora couldn't stand that. She said, Oh, Mrs. Bax, it was very wrong of me. It wasn't my own money, and I'd no business to. But I was so sorry for the little boy and his mother and his darling baby brother. The money belonged to someone else. Who? Mrs. Bax asked, 
ere she had time to remember the excellent Australian rule about not asking questions. And H.O. blurted out, It was Miss Sandal's money, every penny, before we could stop him. Once again in our career concealment was at an end. The rule about questions was again unregarded, and the whole thing came out. It was a long story, and Mrs. Redhouse came out in middle, but nobody could mind her hearing things. When she knew all, from the plain living to the peddler who hadn't a license, Mrs. Back spoke up like a man, and said several kind things that I won't write down. She then went on to say that her sister was not poor and needy at all, but that she lived plain and thought high just because she liked it. We were very disappointed as soon as we had got over our hardly believing any one could like it. I mean, and then Mrs. Redhouse said, Sir James gave me five pounds for the poor woman, and she sent back thirty of your shillings. She had spent three and sevenpence, and they had a lovely supper of boiled pork and greens last night so now you've only got that to make up, and you can buy a most splendid present for Miss Sandal. It is difficult to choose presents for people who live plain and think high because they like it, but at last we decided to get books. They were written by a person called Emerson, and of a dull character, but the backs were very beautiful, and Miss Sandal was most awfully pleased with them when she came down to her cottage with her partially repaired brother, who had fallen off the scaffold when treating a bricklayer to tracks. This is the end of the things we did when we were at Limchurch in Miss Sandal's house. It is the last story that the present author means ever to be the author of, so good-bye. If you have got as far as this, your affectionate author, End of chapter 13 End of New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbitt